This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Matt Genlin. Matt is better known as one of the leading engineers who helped defend the city of Vienna in 1683 from Turkish destruction. Of course, Matt Genlin was not alive in 1683, but if you would like me to make up stuff about you and give you a shout-out on this show, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. More on that later on, but for now, enjoy the show. Hello, history friends, patrons, PhD pals all, and welcome to episode 12 of the Thirty Years' War. In previous episodes, we've looked at how religious differences fanned the flames of revolt. The Dutch Revolt and the Holy Roman Empire endured instability and destructive conflict, thanks to the implications of sectarian ideas and the notion that one couldn't possibly be loyal to the crown and of a different religious persuasion at the same time. The staunchly Catholic Spanish monarchy was a big believer in, and a big promoter of, such ideas. So it may come as something of a surprise to note that, since the very establishment of the Spanish kingdom, the Iberian Peninsula had endured religious divisions completely without parallel in the rest of Western Europe, for it was within Spain that the legacy of the old Islamic caliphates resided. These were the Moriscos, the descendants of the Islamic citizens who had conquered and inhabited Spain from the 8th century. These descendants had, so it was said, converted to Christianity, and many were good Catholics by the early 17th century. However, there remained a core group of Moriscos who put on a good show in public, but who in private refused to forego their old beliefs and traditions. These individuals were to be the target of Spanish fury and intolerance, but as we'll discover in this episode, Madrid had more than superficial reasons to act out. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to this often overlooked and underrated aspect of Spain's pre-Thirty Years' War story.
could argue that without consideration of the religious element, the breakout of the Thirty Years' War itself doesn't make sense. For this reason, it would be unwise if we neglected to examine a similar experience of religious division in the lands, not of Germany, but of that other Habsburg dynasty, Spain. Over the years 1609 to 1614, Spain evicted some quarter of a million Moriscos. Morisco being the name given to those Muslims who had been forcibly converted since the reconquest, or reconquista, of the Iberian Peninsula from the Moors in the late 15th century. The impact which this had upon the Spanish sense of identity and their ability to defend themselves are not to be underestimated, and later Spanish behaviour should be examined with these policies and their consequences in mind. In the first half of the 16th century, the Morisco, literally translated as Moorish, remained part of a separate cultural and religious group, distinct in society from their Catholic Spanish neighbours, in spite of attempts to fully integrate them. Charles V had made efforts to do away with all their old customs in 1525, but he was paid 80,000 ducats to look the other way and rescind this edict. Christianity was the only legally accepted religion in Spain, but by paying off the authorities, the Moriscos ensured that deviations would remain the law in private. Charles's wife even attempted to have some say in this matter, and she tried to further another of these anti-Morisco edicts, but she was also bought off by Morisco bribes in 1530. That same year, the Farda, a new tax worth 20,000 ducats to the Spanish crown every year, was brought in and paid for by the Moriscos, in return for Charles's administration looking the other way and allowing the Moriscos to dress and speak the language that they liked. Morisco money was even used to reduce the jurisdiction of the Inquisition and avoid some of its worst methods. Occupied as he was with the Reformation and with being Holy Roman Emperor as well as King of Spain and Lord of the New World, don't you forget, Charles V pretty much left the Moriscos to their own devices, with the result that by the time his son Philip II succeeded him in 1555, the chasm between Christian and Morisco had never been more apparent. Moriscos attended Mass only to escape punishment, and they still worked in secret behind closed doors on Sundays, revering only Fridays as their holy days. Moriscos fasted and bathed according to their holy calendar. After baptism, their children were cleaned, the males were circumcised, and all were given traditional Moorish names. The women, once they were married in a public Christian ceremony, were believed to return home with their husband, don the traditional Moorish dress, and receive a blessing from the secret imam of that village. It was even supposed that when the Moriscos went to give confession on Easter Sunday, they recited the same confession they had given the previous year. The modern Spanish autonomous community of Andalusia in the south of Spain takes its name from Al-Andalus, the Arabic name for Islamic Spain. Within Andalusia exists eight separate provinces, and it is in one of these provinces, Granada, in the southeast of the peninsula, where these practices and deceptions were arguably the most transparent, and several decades of lax policing had resulted in the practices being more open secrets than actual secrets. As the final Moorish kingdom, conquered by the Christians in 1492, Granada retained more of its original customs than any other segment of the Castilian kingdom. Moriscos had far more in common with their relatives across the sea in North Africa than they did with their Spanish countrymen, but populations of Moriscos were known to exist everywhere, 
from the capital of Andalusia in Seville to La Mancha in the centre of the country to the kingdom of Valencia on the east coast of Spain, where in the late 1400s, Muslims made up a third of the population. Communities of Moriscos kept to themselves rather than integrate, and they lived as Muslims in the same place that their ancestors had done centuries before, regardless of what Madrid liked to tell itself or its king. This was soon to change, though. The Inquisition focused the issue of religious difference like never before in Spanish society, and while it was neither cruel nor unjust in its procedure and its penalties, being more just and more humane than almost any other tribunal in Europe, according to one historian, there were still many stark choices ahead for the Moriscos, but also for those Jews who had been commanded to convert or exit the country in 1492. Indeed, both Jews and Muslims maintained private traditions to their own degree, while putting on an outward display of conversion. Yet, the Inquisition had been in place as an independent Spanish institution since 1478, requiring only lip service from the Pope in order to bless its largely autonomous activities. It was not the Inquisition itself that focused attention on the Moriscos then, but the personality and the convictions of King Philip II of Spain. Ignoring the example set by his father, Philip went ahead with the edict which in previous years Morisco money had kept at bay. From the 1st of January 1567, all Moriscos would have to cease their distinctive dress, stop speaking Arabic and throw out their banned books. All those affected would have three years to comply. It should strike us as revealing that while much of Philip's religious and political advisers urged him onwards, a man of the military the infamous Duke of Alva, or Iron Duke, urged restraint. This was more out of caution than out of respect for the religious customs of the Moriscos, as the Duke of Alva recognised that the edict would force the Moriscos into open rebellion against the Spanish crown, an event for which the Spanish Empire was not at all well prepared. By 1566, Spain was facing into the earlier phases of the revolt in the Netherlands, though that revolt, for now, was merely a fringe Calvinist movement, and it hadn't been granted its later tenacious staying power. And the Dutch, it also has to be said, had yet to show their later flair for resiliency, or tenacity, or innovation. The revolt of the Moriscos began in December 1568, so it was impossible to view these results together as anything other than religiously motivated insurrections against Catholic Spanish power. Accordingly, as one historian noted, when the Moriscos rebelled in 1568, their revolt formed part of a widespread political and religious movement against the Habsburgs and Catholic Christendom. Spain was, as the historian or Trevor Davies noted ruefully, curiously weak in the centre, and nowhere was this weakness more clearly on display than in the subsequent breakdown in law and order caused by the revolt of the Moriscos. This revolt of the Moriscos lasted only two years before it was crushed in late 1570, but the tit-for-tat atrocities committed by both sides, and the atmosphere of bitter hatred and suspicion which remained in the aftermath, seemed to guarantee the conflict would resume in the future. In policies which were mirrored two generations later, the mass expulsions from once prosperous provinces left arid deserts in their wake, as the Moriscos took their goods, their monies, their crafts with them, to their new homes in North Africa, to the Ottoman Empire, or to elsewhere in Europe. 
the experience was a shattering one for Madrid, but it had also been a perilous experience for those Spanish policymakers who looked to Spain's main enemy at the time, the Ottoman Empire. The Christian victory at the Battle of Lepanto, at sea, two years after this revolt had been crushed, didn't diminish the palpable threat which the Spanish felt from Constantinople. The early 1560s hadn't been kind to Spain financially or militarily. She had lost several naval battles to the Turks and much prestige as a result. These encounters with the predominant Ottomans, led at that stage by the resplendent Suleiman the Magnificent, demonstrated that Islamic power had not ceased threatening Spanish interests. Had affairs been different, and had the Ottomans been in a position over 1568-70 to to land an expedition force on the coast of Spain, then the entire edifice of Habsburg Spain could well have crumbled. As it happened, only the frequency of raids from the Muslim corsairs in North Africa increased, and the beleaguered Moriscos sought to sell their Christian captives to these opportunists when the pirates made landfall. This upsurge in piratical activity from Africa's Barbary states, following this initial expulsion of the Moriscos, foreshadowed what was to come during the larger expulsion of 1609-14. While we might have expected the revolt of 1568-70 to serve as a kind of warning, the Spanish simply lacked the means to solve the Morisco problem. Madrid possessed no Arabic-speaking cohort of priests, which would have been truly necessary if the Moriscos, most of whom lacked Spanish, were to be properly reached. The programmes of school and church building in regions where, historically, the Catholic Church had never been strong, were also projects in expenditure beyond the financial strength of any in Europe, according to Davies. The want of funds impacted the Spanish ability to hire and train priests for the Morisco lands, which left only what Davies called the dregs of the clerical profession behind to give instruction. In addition, the taxes which a Morisco would be required to pay were supposed to cease once they became a Catholic and paid tithes to the church instead. But in certain regions, there existed more autonomous lords who wished to receive the tithe from Catholics and the special Jews from Moriscos. The contradiction mattered less to these individuals than their desire for funds, but such behaviour, which was contrary to the Crown's official policy, only served to engender further resentment. It was often within the financial interest of certain lords or governors to ensure that the Moriscos did not properly convert, so that they kept paying the Jews and high taxes, while, to save face with the crown, the tithes were also maintained. Further rulings on the eligibility of certain Moriscos for education and employment added to the negative experience. By barring Moriscos' access to universities, even those descendants of those that had been converted felt marginalised and restricted. And, as Davies continued to note, Once every pathway of ambition was closed to them, they found vent for their energies in stirring up discontent and planning conspiracies. That is not to say, of course, that all Moriscos attempted to agitate against their Spanish overlords. Many did, over time, assimilate and become genuinely devout Catholic Spaniards. Many more, however, were not absorbed because Spain was simply unable to carry out such a policy, and the Moriscos were not given enough incentives to abandon the religion and customs of their ancestors. The danger to Spain was not merely the existence of a fifth column, willing to collaborate with the Turks and Moroccan sultans. 
It was also the case that, in the east of the country, for instance in the Kingdom of Valentia, attacks by Islamic slavers and pirates became increasingly problematic. So acute was the threat from the Mediterranean Corsairs that, in 1584, the Viceroy of Valentia declared his region to be on a war footing. As one historian has written, Neither the Christian victory at Lepanto, the Hispano-Turkish truce, nor the Ottoman withdrawal from the Western Mediterranean following the truce resulted in a contraction of North African piracy against Spain. Spanish security depended on the existence of a loyal and plentiful population to defend and garrison the region, and these things were lacking in Valencia, as well as in portions of Andalusia where Moriscos made up a sizable minority. Pirates became more numerous in the 1590s and early 1600s as Algerian revolts against Ottoman rule released them from the terms of the truce with Spain. In addition, the aforementioned recession and reduction in profits owing to the price revolution compelled Turkish sailors to resort to piracy, which was already the most lucrative form of warfare once this truce with Spain had been signed. Compounding this influx of... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. New pirates into the region was the simultaneous entry of large numbers of English and Dutch pirates, whose governments were then at war with Spain and whose citizens yearned for a way to gain glory and wealth on the open seas. These individuals from Northern Europe didn't just augment the ranks of the Muslim corsairs, they also engaged in more advanced piratical practices and technologies which the pre-existing ranks of pirates adopted, which rendered traditional Mediterranean naval defences completely inadequate. The pirate raids, which had once been confined solely to the coasts of Spain and around North Africa, had been extended, thanks to these developments and the increased hunger for booty, to the Atlantic, which inevitably drove up the cost of naval insurance and reduced Spanish profits still further. In 1584, to take one example, a pirate fleet sailed from Algeria to Spain, which numbered roughly 2,300 ships. The following year, a massive raid carted off the entire Morisco population in the Valentian town of Calosa. No small feat of logistics. 
This brings us to another important point which deserves underlining. Pirates, coming out from North Africa, didn't just steal goods and capture Christian slaves, they also brought Moriscos, who wanted to escape Spain, with them to pastures new in North Africa or the Ottoman Empire. Paradoxically, considering the mass expulsion of the Moriscos over 1609-14, in the preceding years, the governors and viceroys of Spain's provinces refused to permit the emigration of the Moriscos. The policy of keeping Moriscos in Spain can be explained as much by the repulsion felt against apostates, apostates being those Moriscos who declared their conversion to Catholicism only to lapse, as much as it was due to the fear that an exodus of Moriscos would strip the Spanish country of profits, of skilled tradesmen and of farmers which were all necessary to maintain the solvency of the Spanish realm. This brings us to the important question of what changed within the Spanish government's policy to make it suddenly acceptable to expel as many as 300,000 Moriscos between 1609 to 1614. It's this question of what changed that will occupy us now. But before we look at that development, I want to remind you of something very briefly here. And it's a very exciting point as well, because if you weren't aware, we're currently covering Bismarck in never-before-seen detail. Seriously, over eight episodes, and over a heck of a lot of hours with a butt-ton of words, we're examining Bismarck's life and times up to the year 1864. These episodes are being released every week in the regular feed, but if you'd like to access them all at once, then make sure you head on over to patreon.com and see what we can do for you. You might find when you go there that you're interested in listening to Poland Is Not Yet Lost as well. But if you'd just like to sign up, $1 a month is all that it will take. And for that, you'll not only get that Bismarck series, you'll also get Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, a nice little extra sweetener, just in case you needed one. For doubling your money, you'll not only get all of the Bismarck stuff and that Louis XIV series, you'll also get another series, a biography of Jan Sobieski, arguably Poland's last great king. And of course, in all the episodes to come, you'll be getting them slightly earlier and ad-free as well. If you weren't aware, you might be listening to this when it comes out on Wednesday, but if you were a $2 patron, you could be listening to this episode on Monday. And free of ads. What a luxury. Patreon is what helps me keep this podcast going while I'm also doing a PhD. It's literally paying for the PhD, because those things aren't cheap, let me tell you. So if you would like to go over and support the show there, it would be seriously appreciated and would really help me on my way to making history, well, thrive, but also to making When Diplomacy Fails, the podcast and the place where history can thrive. I've already been so fortunate to enjoy your support in the past, and I really do appreciate it. Another thing though, if you don't want to give me your money, I completely understand, but please do just share something that we do in any of our social media stuff. Or if you're feeling more proactive, why not tell your friends or your family members or anyone else about When Diplomacy Fails? Because that's free and it takes no time whatsoever. Thanks again for putting up with these little ads. Now back to our show. One development which stands out in the first decade of the 17th century was the extent to which foreign powers became engaged and involved with Spain's Morisco problem. While cooperation with the Ottoman Empire appears to be the most natural fit for the Moriscos, their agents were equally comfortable making use of Spain's European enemies to gain advantage. The historian Andrew C. Hess wrote that 
Philip II and his Spanish officials raised a major issue involving international relations when they charged, in effect, that the Moors in Spain made up a fifth column that aided both the Ottoman advance in North Africa and the Protestant cause in Europe. Some historians have expressed scepticism on the point of exactly how diplomatically active the Moriscos were in recruiting Protestant European allies in addition to the French. However, these activities were not insignificant. In 1602, the Moriscos entered into negotiations with King Henry IV of France, and specifically his governor of Navarre. The Moriscos promised a force of 80,000 men to aid the French in the event that they invaded northern Spain, while a commitment was also made to hand over three cities to the French invaders. As a sign of their good faith, the Moriscos actually delivered a sum of 120,000 ducats to the governor of Navarre over 1604-05. Or Trevor Davies records that Henry decided to follow the Morisco plan, but postponed it for a time, as the moment did not appear especially favourable. Davies also noted that the Moriscos were factored into Henry's plan to intercede in the ulic cleave succession crisis in 1610. Indeed, Davies went so far as to note that Henry had been discussing plans to collude with the Moriscos, with the aforementioned Governor of Navarre in his royal carriage, mere minutes before the King of France stepped outside of this carriage on the 14th of May, 1610, and was assassinated. The Moriscos of Valentia also negotiated with the King of Morocco in 1608, and promised him 100,000 men if he would just supply 20,000 of his own. Opportunistic Dutch sailors offered their logistical services to enterprises like these in a bid to further weaken Spain wherever possible, and Spain's royal council was deeply disturbed when they learned of such offers, so much so that they sought the means to permanently secure Spain's safety by resolving the Morisco issue once and for all. The existence of such grand designs demonstrate the supremacy of Spain and the interconnectedness of her problems as her three European enemies in the Dutch, English and French consistently aimed at undermining her by inflaming her domestic crises based on the philosophy not just that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but also that Spain's difficulty represented a great opportunity. Even considering the negotiation of peace with France in 1598, with England in 1604 and with the Dutch in 1609, the fundamental threat posed by the Moriscos remained acute. The arrival of official peace treaties or truces didn't mean an end to piracy or conspiracy, and so the threat posed by the Moriscos remained. It wouldn't be quite fair to view this threat as one of Spain's own making, because while it is true that Spanish attempts to incentivize the Moriscos to genuinely convert as a whole failed, it is also true that the Moriscos as a whole never truly accepted their new status or relinquished their attachment to North African, Ottoman and even Christian European benefactors. Since Spain couldn't afford to neutralise the Morisco threat organically, and since her government could not remain idle and permit the threat to exist, it followed that a more radical solution would have to be adopted. As radical solutions go, the expulsion of the Moriscos was the most merciful and least controversial at the time, especially considering the more terrible options technically available to Philip III's government. The process of deliberation was completed on the 30th of January 1608, when the Spanish Council of State arrived at the decision of expelling en masse the Moriscos from Spain. 
The difficult decision was made easier for Valentia by the stipulation that all expelled Moriscos there would lose their property to the nobles and to the lords that undertook the operation. This economic motive seems to have placated the earlier concerns of these lords that the exit of the Moriscos living on their land would significantly reduce their incomes, but it would soon transpire that these concerns had been well-founded, however they tried to dress up any kind of solution. The depopulation of Valentia following the expulsion resulted in a dramatic reduction in the productivity of the land and the towns there, an outcome which led one historian to actually separate the periods before and after expulsion as one of expansion or recession, respectively. A further motive for expulsion was the belief in some quarters that an absence of moriscos would reduce the potency and frequency of those pirate raids launched on the Spanish coasts. As the historian Ellen Friedman noted, The expulsion of the moriscos was not an unpopular action in Spain. Indeed, many people expected it to result in greater security along the Mediterranean coasts, where the indigenous moriscos were believed to be in collusion with the North African corsairs. In Valencia, which had the largest concentration of moriscos, as well as, coincidentally, the greatest vulnerability to attack, there was a clamour for the elimination of this fifth column. Ironically enough, though, despite their high hopes, the opposite actually happened. Rather than a reduction in piracy due to a lack of local Morisco support, the pirate attacks increased as vengeful, dispossessed Moriscos, in addition to opportunistic former residents familiar with the best places to pillage, returned in far numbers in these pirate raids than ever before. The explanation given was that the Moriscos had failed to take advantage of the opportunity to convert truly, as it was put, and while Spanish administrators were incredibly diligent in their task, it was inevitable that confusion and injustice reigned on several occasions. In addition, the actual number of Moriscos expelled, versus the number of Moriscos who managed, through a variety of tactics, to remain behind, have confused the precise amount of moriscos that were actually removed from Spain during this five-year period. While it is thus possible to estimate that as many as half a million moriscos lived in Spain by 1609, if we take the narrow Spanish classification of what it meant to be a morisco, the figure of 150,000 expelled individuals of that group appears to be the most accurate tally, all things considered. Davies even noted that the Spanish were so urgent in their mission to expel Moriscos that they managed, in some cases, to send third or fourth generation Catholics into exile in North Africa. In the context of the turbulent political and religious European climate prior to the Thirty Years' War, the Spanish examples of the Dutch Revolt and the Morisco threat demonstrate what had become a widely accepted truth among statesmen, that truth being loyalty to the regime and religious difference were not compatible. Such a truism was not an exclusively Spanish construct. To take two examples, it had been enshrined in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg of the Holy Roman Empire, as much as it had been codified in the Recusancy Acts under Elizabeth I, which made it a legal requirement to worship in line with the Anglican Creed, at least until this was repealed in 1650. Attempts across Europe to control the religion of the subject and bring it into line with the ruler were based on the belief that without religious affinity, disloyalty and revolt against the regime would follow, alongside potentially fatal efforts to enlist foreign aid. The revolts of their Calvinist Dutch and Islamic Morisco subjects 
and the damaging foreign aid they enlisted from Spain's European rivals validated this belief and added to the perception that a religiously diverse kingdom was an unstable one. It is also worth considering the fact that on the 4th of April 1609, two weeks before an exhausting period of Spanish-Dutch peacemaking was brought to a successful conclusion with the signing of the Twelve Years' Truce on the 21st of April 1609, the expulsion of the Moriscos as an official policy was ratified in Madrid. With one conflict resolved, so it seems, the Spanish moved with an almost deliberate sense of purpose headfirst into another. And this Morisco policy would not be resolved until 1614. This activity reminds us exactly how busy and distracted by their internal affairs the Spanish policymakers were, even before the country's full involvement in the Thirty Years' War. By the end of the mass expulsion process, certain individuals had enriched themselves at the Morisco's expense. But while it is important to keep the impact of the expulsion in perspective, considering the pre-existing decline of eastern Spain in particular, by and large, the experience had not been a particularly positive one for Spanish finances. By the second decade of the 17th century, Spain was at peace with its enemies, but it had expended a great deal of resources and confronted several significant challenges to its religious and political regimes. These experiences have to be placed in context, dear listener, and they should be considered in light of the subsequent behaviour of Spanish policymakers, who moved diligently in the years after 1614 to secure Spanish security and prosperity through diplomatic and military means on the continent, starting with the question of succession in the Austrian Habsburg lands. Next time then, we're going to examine how Spanish diplomacy tried to achieve its ends before the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. This analysis will take us not only to Vienna, but also into England, where efforts to forge a marital alliance with the Stuarts were pursued, in spite of the religious difference of the couple, only to fail because of these differences in the end. I hope you'll join me for that episode, dear history friends, but until then, my name is Zach and this has been episode 12 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting the show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 